Stay focused on sharing good information in a world of misinformation. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski. On today's Triple H, the habits and hacks from Hopkins, I'm so pleased to bring to you Dr. Sapna Kuchadkar. Sapna, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Kim. This is so exciting. I'm really, I'm really glad to be here chatting with you. Well, I know you have a really super exciting talk, but I want you to start with telling everybody here on the podcast land who you are and what you do here at Hopkins. Sure. Well, I guess from a formal title perspective, I'm an associate professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine, pediatrics and physical medicine and rehabilitation here at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Um, But like most people uh, at at Johns Hopkins and in academia, I I have many hats um, that um, are really nicely integrated together, I guess, is the best way to put it. So as a clinician, uh, my role is as a pediatric intensivist and anesthesiologist. So I spend about half of my clinical time working in the pediatric operating rooms, taking care of children who need anesthesia for surgical procedures. Uh, So I did anesthesia residency here at Johns Hopkins. Uh, And my other clinical hat is as a pediatric intensivist, and that's caring for critically ill children ages zero up to often age 25, in the pediatric intensive care unit who are, have experienced trauma, um, have major surgery or uh, other medical illnesses. So uh, that, that's my clinical time. And when I'm not in the operating rooms or in the ICU, I'm an implementation scientist and a researcher. So I, I do a lot of work with early mobility and critically ill children. We created a program called Pick You Up. We're so proud of the Pick You Up program. We implemented it here at Johns Hopkins as a single center study. And it was just a really great way to show how one single center quality improvement study could make a huge difference. We started talking about that work and eventually Pick You Up has now become an internationally uh, adapted program in ICUs across the world. So that's been very, very exciting. Uh, I also enjoy teaching in the medical school because I'm very passionate about um, clinical research and quality improvement. I teach one of the courses uh, for scholarly concentrations for the first year medical students. And uh, when I'm not doing all of those things, I, I just love getting out there on a platform to talk about the role of professional social media and science communication uh, as, as, as our responsibility as a scientist and clinicians. My goodness. So clearly the professional social media, I'm imagining everything you talked about, you can do that between the hours of midnight and 4.30 a.m. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I get asked that a lot. They're like, wait, where do you have time to do all these other things? It feels like you're always on on, on Twitter or <laughs> talking about all of these things. But it really, um, I found a nice way to weave it into my, into my uh, day-to-day because it's so important to me. You want something done? Ask the busiest person you know because uh, they figured out how to how to manage time. So I I I'm so excited to learn more about this topic that you just ended with this professional social media. Admittedly, I'm not good about this, and I I remember being on a Twitter conversation or whatever they called it, a national thing, and I was so overwhelmed with all the the tweets coming in. I didn't know how to address them, and I kind of. My, my response to everybody was, email me, email me. <laughs> right. Questions coming in from around. And so I'm like the worst person. Absolutely. Leader, but you are have given yourself a nice reputation for being this consummate science communicator. So I really can't wait to learn more about you and how you do this. 
how how do we do professional social media and do it well as you are have become the expert in this? Absolutely. Well, I think it's uh, it would be good to give some context about how I even got involved or excited about any of this. So, you know, I remember um, sitting in a critical care rehabilitation conference back in uh, 2000, I think at this point, 2014 or 15 with uh, Dr. Dale Needham, who was running that conference. And I noticed that they were doing this thing called tweeting during the conference. So, you know, anytime what someone would put out a, a really interesting tidbit or there would be a link to an article that someone wanted to share, they'd say, you can also find this on Twitter and you can look at this hashtag, I see rehab. I was like, what? wait, what? what are all these like different words, these buzzwords that they were throwing out there? So I became very curious and I went to my, um, I, my phone and I looked up the Twitter app and I just put in this pound sign, which is what I was calling it, a pound sign, (laughs) ICU rehab. And all of a sudden, there was all of this information just right there at my fingertips, links to important articles, sound bites from, you know, thought leaders in the area. And I said, wow, this is so cool. And that was when I sent my first tweet. And I guess that was the the beginning of um, a long journey um, that is still, still progressing. So I learned very quickly that you know, while social media, professional social media, especially can be overwhelming for people because they feel like they're getting so much information. It's like drinking from a fire hydrant. I realized very quickly that it was a spectacular way for me to actually curate the information that I needed to get it to me efficiently. So for example, you know, I do research in a multitude of different areas. It is virtually impossible for me to try to keep up with all of the research going on in pediatric critical care, pediatric anesthesia, in rehabilitation research, delirium, sedation, sleep, all of these things that I'm very passionate about and I want to keep on top of, right? So how do you keep on top of it? I I don't subscribe to every single journal in the world. Um, You know, I don't have- I don't have time to to read all the articles. Exactly. I don't have, you know, I don't have um, someone looking up these articles for me on a daily basis. So I found that social media became an outstanding way to do that. And eventually I realized that within my own Pete's critical care community, we didn't have kind of a community like that. We had the the emergency medicine folks were the first to really put a community and platform in place where they would use hashtags, hashtag FOMED, F-O-A-M-E-D is a very uh, popular hashtag. You want to check it out. And hashtags are really just the keywords of social media. So essentially, just like you'd go into Medline, PubMed, and put in a keyword, you go on Twitter, put in the same keyword. So you can imagine one of the most popular keywords right now is hashtag COVID-19, hashtag why I vax, hashtag masks up. Um, But if you want to get your messaging out there to a larger community using these curated hashtags are um, a nice way to do that. So I realized within my Pete's ICU community, we didn't have that. So I created a hashtag, hashtag Peds ICU. And that was really when everything took off. That's when my colleagues in the Peds ICU community began to realize, wow, this is something that we can use to come together as a community and talk about what's happening in our, um, in our world, things that are unique to us. And also now, as you can imagine, current events wise with you know, all this discussion about children potentially being impacted by the new surges, it's an opportunity for us to get on a platform and talk about what's best for children's health. Wow. So, so you, you created hashtag peds ICU. Correct. Yes. I worked together with, <laughs> I worked together with Carly Riley, who's uh, who was uh, one of the AAP members who was interested in creating a community around that. And Sean Barnes, one of our faculty here at Johns Hopkins. 
And essentially it was like a, I was like a two person show. We would just go to every conference we could find and ask for two minutes to get up on the podium and tell people about why professional social media um, could be a really great addition to their careers and their um, actually their own professional development. And you can imagine Kim, like the, what, how people looked at us at the beginning. And we still get a few of those looks here and there, like, oh gosh, they're here. They're going to talk about social media again. Um, But the turning point, and as you know, there's always people who have a vision, even if they don't understand the the content of the vision, they say, you know, I think that this is something that could be real. And the the editor-in-chief of Pete's Critical Care Medicine, the journal, which is one of the SCCM journals, emailed me while I was giving one of those talks, Pat Kohanek, and said, I want you to be my associate editor for social media. He said, I don't know what this thing is, the social media stuff, but I want you to do it. I think it'll be good for the journal. And and that is when, when Pat sent that email, that's really when um, we had a platform and it enabled me to grow personally, but also to enable an entire community to grow, which is. Oh, I'm all about building community. That just gives me goosebumps because wow, (laughs) what a feeling of accomplishment that that must have given you to know that, okay, now people, we can get to work. We're all going to be able to talk to each other in real time. And it was so the cool. gates have been opened up and no, get rid of the isolation and the people who feel like they're all alone and, and ha- don't have time to be in the know that you, you brought everyone together. It must so bring you so much satisfaction. So kudos oh. to you. Uh, thank you. Well, I think you put it perfectly. One of the reasons, you know, one of the first slides I present whenever I talk about this is, you know, whether we appreciate it or not, or have the insight to um, say this, we all live in bubbles, right? So you, I had to acknowledge I was in a Johns Hopkins Medicine institutional bubble. I'm in an academia bubble. I'm in my Pete's critical care bubble, my Pete's anesthesia bubble. Um, and so it's really hard to get any information into those bubbles if you're not actively trying, actively working on it. At the same time, all of us within these bubbles, we, we're not interacting with the people in the other bubbles that could have a potential contribution to what we're doing, including all of those colleagues and community um, PICUs out there taking care of kids, just like I am. But we're not, we don't have an interface necessarily what this has done is created an immediate interface for all of us to really feel like we're not alone in this. So so right now we're all talking actively about what we're dealing with in PICUs across the world, right? What is everyone, what is Australia seeing? And as we know, everything moved right from Australia through to Europe to us, we're learning about it instantaneously. So we can prepare. Let me just pause you here for a moment because this makes so much sense and it's so everybody from how many, I guess, decades ago started getting on Facebook and social media there, we, you know, everybody kind of knows about this stuff. And yet there's still a little bit of reticence of, maybe it's on the generational thing among some people to understand how this works and how best to access this without still having the fire hose metaphor of even going on YouTube. You know, when my friends put me on a couple of YouTube channels, that leads you down the rabbit hole. And I'll be like, of course, what have I do- been doing for 40 minutes? How do I, how am I watching cute puppy dogs? I mean, it's adorable, but how transfixed? Like I'm watching a lava lamp just sitting there. And um, you hope it's cute puppy dogs you end up on, right? You don't know where you're going to go. Exactly. So how, how do you, how do we reach people who are still 
like on the fence about this, or for me, it was a frustration with, it was too many, like you said, the at sign and the pound sign and how do right. you reply to people? How do you get over the hurdle of people, the reticence, maybe not only about they don't, I'm not into that stuff, but also I don't know how to do that stuff. Did it come naturally? Is it just a matter of like, how did you get the community on board? I imagine you still, you have early adopters, of course, and we probably have some late adopters yeah. probably sitting out there who are still like, I'm not doing that. But can you give any insight into helping people get to you or pushing people to get to you? How does that work? No, it's it's the perfect question. And I think you asked all the right questions. Uh, we realized early on and when we we're going on these, you know, small, small shows that we were trying to get the messaging out there that you do just like, you know, actually just like masks and vaccines, you have to come at it with information, just sharing good information. So really, when I when I start talking about this with anyone who's a neophyte to the to the to the area or is a little skeptical I talk about how it changed my life, how it has had an impact on me as a teacher, as a clinician, as a researcher, and as as an advocate for children's health, for example. And I share that story from the beginning. And I say, look, I'm not expecting you, and I'm not sure that you should be um, Sapna on Twitter, right? Who who is checking her feed um, very often and has, has made it her goal to build this large global community. I want you to give it a chance and join this community and just start by opening an account, right? And just, just open an account, add a um, professional photo of yourself. Because again, this is another way to put yourself out there, right? To let people know who you are as an individual and as a, a in your profession. Put in a short bio that says who you are. All it has to say is, you know, I'm an internal medicine physician at Johns Hopkins. That's all it has to say. Or you can add more things. Mine says I'm a mom. I'm a trumpet player. I'm a, a senior associate editor at the journal. Um, just to let people know that this is this is kind of what what drives you. And then you can just watch. No one is asking you to send a tweet. No one is asking you to retweet anything or like anything even. Just observe and start out by following thought leaders that you trust. If you would trust them in person, talking to them in a room and they're on Twitter, give them a follow on Twitter. Um, Wes Ely, who's one of the fathers of adult ICU liberation and delirium work, um, he's, he mentors you know thousands of people across the world. He's a perfect example. I got him on Twitter, and and now he can't he can't um, he can't stop. You know he's a thought leader to the nth degree, and now we get to hear from him every day, not just whenever we get a paper um, in a big journal from him. So start by following those thought leaders. Start by following organizations and journals because those are the three that you know it's it's hard to to get dangerous with those because you trust them to begin with, right? Um, and then see what, what comes out of it and then see what how people respond to the things that these thought leaders, organizations and journals are putting out there. And then you will start to see organically how you can potentially start not just observing, but contributing. And, that's, and, and, and it'll happen organically. Uh, there are many, many people out there, probably more than not what I call lurkers, and being a lurker is not a bad thing. So I have many people come to me at conferences and say, I follow you on Twitter. I've never tweeted anything, but thank you for all the content you put out there. And so you don't know what's making a difference, but there are people out there listening, even if they are not engaging back with you. And I think from people who are those observers who have taken that plunge 
they appreciate being in the know. They appreciate waking up in the morning and knowing that JAMA had a big article that came out that's controversial or, you know, knowing that there's this huge surge over here. It's kind of getting it all at once, not Mm -hmm. having to sit in front of a television or in front of your computer screen for hours upon hours trying to put it all together. Sapna, this is just so amazing. Uh, Can you tell us, uh, talk a little bit about um, the professional, the ethics, and you've mentioned this phrase, drowning out misinformation. How do you assure or monitor, you know, boundaries of, of, you know, you you talked a bit about, you know, the, the trusted sources of information, but and I'm, earlier you talked about this phrase of infodemic. How do you address through your social media topics that are divisive and the misinformation out there? Do you attack that head on or do we kind of skirt that politely? How does that, what are the, you know, the rules of operation in, in the Twitter sphere? It's a very, very important topic for discussion. So obviously uh, there's a lot of great things about Uh, professional social media, but there's the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? And um, I think many of our pediatrician colleagues have also have experienced this when they talk about the importance of masking in children. And, um, you know, there are people who who may come after you and, 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 you know, what we call uh, affectionately the trolls, the people who are going to to say things, be disrespectful. I think that the key and what I always encourage um, folks on social media, whether they've been on for just a few minutes or they've been doing this for years, um, be on social media the way you would be in person. Don't say anything on social media that you wouldn't be willing to say in person um, and to say publicly in a group forum. That, That I think is the best first rule from a professional perspective, because this is your persona. This is you um, out there. And, you know, everyone understands that if you're out on social media, that that's something that someone could pull up in a Google search, for example. So you never want to say anything that you would regret later. <laughs> and um, it's my my last point on every talk is always remember that a tweet lasts a lifetime. You're always welcome to delete something if you're like, oh, wait, wait a second, I shouldn't have said that. But it's out there, regardless of whether you deleted it. You know, and so that's that's the first step. The second step is, um, as uh, you know, since we're talking about this on a you know podcast, and I'm from the School of Medicine, I have to mention that it's especially in the pandemic, we've noticed that there's a lot of people putting stuff out there about patient stories, things that they've seen, and it's very important first and foremost to always protect privacy of patients and families. So unless you've obtained explicit uh, permission from both the families, patients, and also from your institution um, to share this information on social media, be very careful. Not even sharing dates, times, gender, um, any identifying information can tell someone immediately what you're talking about or who you're talking about. So stay away from those. Stay focused on sharing good information in a world of misinformation. Mm, so I like that. I like that. Let's always share good news, good news, good news. Exactly. So I do not, I personally have made a decision not to engage with the negative information oh. um, with the, the people who are out there. Because if I amplify that and say something, I'm just amplifying it. I'm just putting it out there to all my followers. And then that could potentially um, increase the bandwidth of that message that I potentially think is harmful. Mm-hmm. So instead, I think as scientists, as clinicians, as advocates for health, um, we need to be out there putting out good information, sharing what we think is best, 
um, not being divisive, but just saying, this is my perspective and I want to put it out there and celebrating when people put out messages that are good as well. So I amplify as much as possible when someone is sharing something that I think will benefit um, the people that I'm most passionate about protecting. And in my case, you know, children for sure. So this morning, um, the, the our school district that my that I live in, um, they announced that they are um, doing um, universal masking, but also that, uh, you know, uh, requiring vaccines for all staff and or and or testing regularly. And I shared that that was something I wanted to amplify because that's good information. That's that's advocating for children. So that's just one example. Uh, you know, some people ask how much you should mix your personal and professional social media. Hmm. I encourage folks to create a professional social media account. Often Twitter is the best form for that. A lot of people use Facebook and Instagram kind of for personal family photos for I went on vacation to Cape Cod last week, blah, blah, blah. And then professional social media can focus kind of on your day-to-day professional life, career, science, whatever it is that you want to talk about with your colleagues. Do I put an occasional picture of my family on Twitter, on my professional social media account? Yes, because my role as a mother in medicine is also something that my followers really enjoy hearing about. And my experiences, um, you know, the, the ups and downs of motherhood in medicine is some another thing that I share in addition to all of the science and um, other information. That's right. That's right. Good for you. And we can't separate those. I think especially during the pandemic, we've all learned that those lines of work, family life, work balance and air quotes or, or integration uh, has always been commingled, but boy, it's even more enmeshed during our times of quarantining and staying home. So I think that's it's even more critical that we all have wrapped our heads around the fact that we're all we have different roles. And so there's no sense in trying to be robot like and have boxes around right. different components. We have so many things going on in and out of our heads and our lives during the day. It's almost obnoxious to not acknowledge the fact that yeah, I'm writing this great paper or writing this grant application. And um, I have a toddler and a young kid in school that I'm homeschooling and I have a partner and I have, you know, someone working on the house and you have all these kind of stressors. It's real, like, right? It's, it's real. I mean, I, I I just posted a few weeks ago that um, I had four failed K-23 applications and oh. I finally got my first R01. And Ooh. so, you know, but I wanted people to know that this is, this is, real. This is, this is what we go through. Like I could have just shared out there like, Hey, I got my R1. This is so exciting. But I wanted people to know how much went into it and how much failure came, went into it along the way. And uh, that, you know, stories like that, it's stories like when I had COVID and I isolated myself, as I mentioned back in March, 2020, those are the things that people want to hear about because it's potentially their shared lived experience. Right. I I love that authenticity that it's, I've often talked about it, creating some kind of a seminar session where people would share the anti-CV. Exactly. And that is the, that we always compare our insides to people's outsides and say, oh, I'll never be like Sapna. I'll never have an R01. Well, what Sapna's CV does not show you is how many right. failed K20s. There's no section in our, in our CVs that said, um, applied for an unfunded or unscored triage. Degree. And there's a reason for that, right? There's a reason we don't keep a CV of rejections because that CV would be impossible to keep up with. It right. would be so much longer than the other CV that I submit for promotions. And, you know, I, I say that to people every day. I want to share 
all of my failures, because it's really important that you know that it's not just all all shiny and like this, everything has gone perfectly. You know, that's very, very important. I think I, I would love to join that seminar and I'm happy to speak yeah. to that. Oh, I will remember it's not home run, home run, home run. It, it's we learn from those failures. Hello. I mean, if you didn't have all those failures and you wouldn't and, have the successes. Right. So. Because every time you fail or every time I fell down, I learned something. Correct. And I to the next step. And so I remember when I first started, I think it was back in Chicago, when I was submitting an R01 at every um, cycle. So it was three a year, Feb, June, and October. And I started keeping track of all of them. And then one of my friends said, why do you have those on your CV? I said, because I want people to know I'm in the game. I'm swinging exactly. the bat. I'm swinging the bat. And there's a difference between someone who says, I want to be an investigator versus someone who's actually out there trying. And I said, I, I want people to understand that I, I do know the components of a grant application. And she's like, but you're also telling them that you obviously don't know how to get one. And I'm like, yeah, but. <laughs> no, but it's so, it, it's so important. It's so true. And I'll be honest with you. If I had not failed with those four K23 applications, I wouldn't have found pick you up. It wouldn't have happened. I would have gone wow. along my merry way with these other K23s. And, but it forced me to stop and um, take a step back reinvent my science, reinvent my, my pathway. And it, it changed everything. It changed my career, but most importantly, I think it's having a much larger impact on, on kids, which I I shudder to think what would have happened if one of those cases had been funded. Now, looking back at the time, it didn't feel that way. (laughs) What a profound observation. Dr. Kudchankar, do you hear, do you hear what she just said, everybody? If she had not failed pick you up may never have existed. It wouldn't have hundred percent. Think about, think about all the, what we have looked upon and says, Oh, I screwed up. I messed up. I failed. What a loser. And yet on the other side, that, that, that Monday morning armchair quarterback, and you're like, Oh, that's why I right. didn't. That's why that I didn't, my bid for that house didn't go through because I was meant to get the other house. Exactly. Had I gone down that road, I wouldn't have met that person. Or had I taken that job? I mean, so through my life, the same way, looking back, oh my gosh, I applied for a job and I thought I knocked out of the park. And then the salary was super, super low, or I didn't get the job. And I'm like, I can't believe I didn't get that job. Yeah. But now I'm thinking, oh my gosh, had I gotten that job, would I be here? Exactly. Exactly. So it's perfect. And you said something a couple minutes ago that we kind of you kind of snuck in there. But I did want to amplify this because you're another example of resilience as you are one of the first COVID cases and you were profiled all over social media. Did you want to say anything about how you uh, bounce back or what you learned from that lesson? Yeah. Oh, uh, um, uh, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, I, I it was definitely one of the toughest times in my life as as everyone was going through a very tough time, obviously globally. And, you know, it's, it's amazing to think, right. That you have this shared experience with everyone across the globe. Everyone is dealing with the same like big thing. And then everyone has a slightly different experience based on what happened. So just briefly, yeah, in March, you know, March 15th was when the pandemic was declared and six days later, I got COVID. I was one of the first 250 cases in Maryland. And um, we didn't know much about what it meant to have COVID disease then. It wasn't, there wasn't a lot out there in the news. There wasn't, you know, what to do if you get COVID. Like, do you go isolate for 14 days? Do you have to be by yourself? So that's what I assumed. I said, I need to protect my family. I was working in the hospital. And then, so obviously I left the hospital and then I went home and I isolated for 14 days. And what that, that 14 days did for me is I realized the 
huge essence and importance of human touch in our lives. Mm. And, and just the complete loss of that for two weeks was, um, it was, it was tragic. It was really, really hard. And here I was, I had mild disease. I wasn't sick. And so then when I got sent back to the adult COVID units, after I came out of quarantine, watching these, uh, I, I had a, a shared experience with these patients because they're in yeah. these rooms by themselves, you know, their nurse comes in and out with PPE, but for the most part, they're in the rooms alone and, you know, ha- unable to have family visit. And even though I was not as sick as them, thank goodness, I I can't imagine having that lack of human touch layered on top of critical illness and all of the things that come with hospitalization. So my life was, um, it was, it was hard. I, I had a lot of emotional turmoil surrounding that period, just watching this unfold um, mm. over five to six months. And it's, it's hard to believe we're still in a spot where we're talking about this, that this is, but luckily we've gotten better at figuring this out. How do we make it better for patients? We're learning the importance of family at the bedside. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully, hopefully some good things will come out of this, but, um, but it was a tough time. It was a tough time. Uh, I'm so glad you came out of it. And I'm, I can tell too, that that experience, no doubt brought you a deeper and a richer appreciation and empathy for, um, the patients in a different, in a different way, especially those patients, I imagine, uh, really felt that connection of you seeing them and then seeing you and saying, no, I got you. I know this is tough. You know, we're doing everything we can. You can get through this. And just that extra special moment with patients was a lot more meaningful, I'm sure, to you and to them and to the family members, knowing that uh, you, you, I understand personally because I've been there. I get it. And I, there's, I yeah, there's no I, question. And the other thing that I um, learned immediately was that, you know, so at, when this was all happening with the initial surge, we were putting together these teams of clinicians who came from different areas of the hospital, right? So there was a transplant nurse and a cardiac nurse and a pediatrician and a surgeon taking care of patients on the COVID units. And what I immediately learned also is the importance of sharing our own internal emotional turmoil with each other. And I'll never forget, I I told a nurse that I, I had a good cry on the way to the hospital because of something that happened with one of our patients and I came into work and they could tell I was a little down and they asked why I said, Oh, I just had a good cry. I called my mom to talk about it. And uh, the nurse said, you know, this is the first time that I've ever heard a physician say that they cried after they left the hospital. She's like, thank you so much for sharing that with me because you know, it's important for us to know that you guys cry too. Yeah. And I was, that was when I was like, Oh my gosh, like how ridiculous is this that, you know, we we're not talking about this with each other, the very people that we have these shared experiences with. So that was another uh, thing that came out of it. And now I, sh- I share away, I share with everyone because you're seeing in my tube because I tend to overshare as well. And, that, <laughs> and I'm always kind of having the thought bubble, like, can, can <laughs> walk it back, walk it back, walk it back. But I love, there's such beauty and just Again, splaying ourselves open. It's being authentic, being authentic. Right. We're literally, we're all in this together. I'm a human being. We're all actually just walking each other home. We're all just in life together. And we're sometimes we're walking along next time, next to somebody for a moment in time. And this is it. And why, why, why spend that time together having these borders and these boundaries and this toughness about us that um, keeps us separate from each other when there's there's so many ways that we can just be the vulnerability and be real 
It's not only good for you, it's good for them. It just kind of elevates you to a new level of understanding. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. And I and and I also get a little emotional support along the way too, right? right. We each help each other. So and I think people have gotten better about that in the last 18 months. We've learned a lot about the importance of putting it out there, sharing with each other how hard this is. And obviously in healthcare, um, it's 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 been a huge challenge this this last uh, several months. Wow, Sapna, you you are amazing. I'm so proud of you. I'm congratulations on your R01. You've made a tremendous impact not only at here at Hopkins but in the community. I hope everyone checks out the Pick You Up program, the hashtag Peds ICU. This has been a wonderful conversation, Sapna. I've really enjoyed it. So you've been listening to and learning a lot from Dr. Sapna Kuchadkar. This is Kim Skorupski and the Faculty Factory Podcast. Sapna, I'll leave the final word to you. Oh, thanks so much, Kim, for having me. This has been such a fun time chatting with you about a host of different topics, really. I just I just want to say um, to everyone listening out there that what you're doing is amazing. And it's it's so important that you share it with the world share good messages, share the important work you're doing, share your science, share other people's science, share each other's work. That is how we grow as a uh, community and uh, don't hesitate to be authentic. It's okay to to share of yourself because it will only help you to build um, professional networks as people realize that, you know, we're all just one of each other. We just all have different skills and talents and we need to share that with the world. And Please do follow me at Sapna KMD if you want to kind of be lurk for a bit and and watch how one person does it. Follow those thought leaders, organizations, um, folks that you trust and respect. And I promise that you will find that putting yourself out there will be a positive experience. And thanks again, Kim, for an awesome conversation. Sapna, say one more time how they can follow you. Twitter handle is at S-A-P-N-A-K-M-D, Sapna KMD. That's wonderful, folks. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. Thanks, Safna. Thanks, Kim. Talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.